Let us now read together from our confessions. First of all, from our Hatterberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35. That's page 552 at the end of your book of praise. It is about the second commandment. Lord's Day 35, there we find a summary of God's word as follows. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. And may we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Now, we shall also read together from our other confession, the Belgic Confession, and I want to read Article 32. That's on page 512. It's about the order and discipline of the church. Again, this is a summary of God's word. We believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the church to establish a certain order to maintain the body of the church, they must at all times watch that they do not deviate from what Christ, our only master, has commanded. Therefore, we reject all human inventions and laws introduced into the worship of God, which bind and compel the consciences in any way. We accept only what is proper to preserve and promote harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, discipline and excommunication are to be exercised in agreement with the word of God. And now I'd also like to draw attention to our church order and uh, Article 53 of the Church Order, that's on page 656. The Church Order is not one of our confessions, but it is an agreement between the churches of our Federation to conduct ourselves in accordance with those regulations so that all things are done decently and in good order. So, Article 53 of the Church Order, Days of Commemoration. And this is the article after the worship services, which are to be done on the Lord's Day. And now, this article says, Each year the churches shall, in a manner decided upon by the consistory, commemorate the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as his outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thus far then from our confessions and also from the church order. After the sermon we will sing from 
hymn three, stanzas one, two, and five. O holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, around us we can observe that it is a festive time of the year. People all around us are preparing for the Christmas holidays, and these activities are fueled by merchants actively peddling their wares. They create the mood by decorating their stores with Christmas ornaments or by inundating the airwaves with advertisements accompanied by Christmas jingles. In the shopping malls, we hear beautiful hymns to the praise of the birth of our Savior intermixed with songs like Jingle Bells and Here Comes Santa Claus. Retail merchants eagerly promote the Christmas season. They do that because to them it is the best time of the year. Not necessarily because of the birth of Christ, but because of all the jingling in the cash registers. The masses eagerly go along with it all. They're busily planning their festivities, decorating their homes, having office parties, and getting presents for that special person. They also shop until everybody on their list has been checked off. They shop until they drop. They do it all because of the spirit of the season whatever that is. We too get caught up in it, don't we? Many things the world does, we do as well. And the question is whether or not that is right. To what extent should we get caught up in this? What are we as Christians supposed to do with the Christmas holidays? What does the Lord want from us? Well, that's what Lord's Day 35 has us deal with. For it is about the second commandment, which deals with how we must worship. The Catechism summarizes that commandment by teaching us that we must worship the Lord God, that we must not worship the Lord God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. We may not bring any ungodly elements into it or remove any divine elements from it. And that's straight from God's word. We just read it. In connection with the second commandment, the Lord God tells us in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. That's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is as follows. Worship the Lord only in the manner he has shown in his word. That means that we may not in the first place add to it or in the second place take away from it. Some Christians are not in favor of celebrating Christmas at all. Some even go so far as to say that you sin when you do that. They say that Christmas is a human invention. And they say that about other holidays as well, such as Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension Day. 
And indeed, the command to celebrate Christmas on December the 25th is nowhere to be found in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the scriptures do not tell us what time of the year the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Scholars will point out that shepherds in Palestine came in from the, in from the fields before winter. And so the shepherds mentioned in Luke 2 at the time of the birth of Christ would not have been in the fields during the month of December. The sheep would have been brought back to their villages in late October or early November. When then do we celebrate, why then do we celebrate at the end of December? Well, that is because this date has its roots in pagan holidays. The end of December was a time of celebration for pagans in the south of Europe, in Egypt and Persia and in Rome and Greece and among the German and Celtic tribes. They celebrated the fact that the days would get longer again at the end of December. It marked the end of the winter solstice. The holly, the mistletoe, the yule log, the Christmas lights and the evergreen trees were all originally part of pagan celebrations and worship. Christmas was not even celebrated during the first few centuries of the church. It did not become a practice to celebrate the birth of Christ at the end of December until the middle of the fourth century. And it only became an official Christmas holiday in the year 534. The celebration of Christmas at the end of December became a practice because of Pope Gregory I's instructions to the missionaries. He wanted to exchange the pagan holidays for Christian ones, and he wanted the unbelievers to worship the God of the Bible and to teach them about Christ. Since then, Christmas has slowly become one of the most important holidays in the Christian calendar. Good Friday, Easter, and Thanksgiving were added as well. These latter holidays are by and large celebrated at the correct time of the year, but with all of these special holidays, there is no express command in the Bible to have a special day for the worship to celebrate these events. The reformers of the 16th century examined these practices of the church and wanted to return to the scriptures. Luther, Calvin, and Swingley were not in favor of keeping these special religious holidays. Like the others, Calvin had no sympathy with Roman Catholic ceremonialism, which was overloaded with unscriptural traditions and superstitions. He wanted to have the worship services only on the Sunday. The Reformed churches in the Netherlands, in which we have our roots, agreed. And so at a synod held in 1574, the churches decided that the feast day should, be, should not be held on a special day of the week, but on the Sunday before the so-called event. And so with regard to Christmas, they decided that the birth of Christ should be remembered on the Sunday before Christmas Day. 
They also decided to admonish the people to not to observe the celebration of Christmas if it fell on a weekday. The problem, however, was that most people on December the 25th did not have to work on that day and were accustomed to celebrating Christmas on that day. And therefore, many did not use their day off wisely. That was also the case with the other religious holidays during the year, such as the Monday after Easter Sunday, the Monday after Pentecost Sunday, and in some places, Ascension Day and New Year's Eve. Some men went to the bars that day and engaged in other unwholesome activities. And so four years later, in, 18, in 1578, another synod was held to deal with that same issue. This time they made it even more prescriptive. Senate observed that God has given man the freedom to work six days a week and that only the Sunday be set aside for worship. Senate urged the ministers of the churches to teach the members of the congregation to conduct themselves on those special days properly and to transform unproductive and harmful idleness into holy and profitable exercises. However, the Reformed churches could still not stem the tide. The people celebrated on those special days anyway. So rather than going against the tide, the church succumbed and allowed the institution of special worship services commemorating special New Testament events. However, now it was prescribed to worship on a special day, even if it was a weekday. It was made mandatory. And so that, all that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries. However, in the 19th century, this once again became an issue. The, session, the secession churches in 1834 did not like it that these holidays were prescribed. They wanted to leave it up to the conscience of the people. They said that we must not compel the people to observe the so-called feast days, which the Lord has not commanded in his word. And that's how it stands with us as well. Currently, as it states in our church order, Article 53, which we read, that the celebration of special feast days is left up to the freedom of the churches. According to the church order, you do not have to have a special worship service on Christmas Day, Good Friday, Thanksgiving Day, or any other special day. Those New Testament events shall be commemorated, it says, in a manner decided upon by the consistory. In other words, if a consistory decides to celebrate the events on a Sunday and not on a special weekday, that's up to them. And yet we do have special worship services on Christmas and Good Friday and Ascension Day. Why? Well, brothers and sisters, because that allows us to have the opportunity to focus on what that celebration is all about. If we did not worship on that day, then we also would be in danger of taking over the secular celebrations and practices of the world around us and diminish the true meaning of the birth of Christ. And so now we do it, not because we are compelled, 
but because we have the wonderful freedom to do so. In this way, we can show ourselves to be different from the world. Whereas the world focuses on men's gifts to each other, we focus on God's gift to the world. We look to God to bless us, whereas the world looks to man to bless himself. We seek the salvation from God. The world seeks salvation from man. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that the birth of Christ is one of the most significant events in the history of humanity. The Old Testament church had been waiting for, for that for thousands of years. Finally, the Messiah came in the flesh. The Lord God kept his promise that the evil one would be destroyed. He kept his promise to redeem his people from their sins and grant them glorious eternal lives. He kept his promises that through that Savior, our everlasting joy would be ours and that the doors of heaven would be opened up. Isn't that something to celebrate? Isn't that something to sing about? Isn't that something to rejoice about? This world is in the grip of sin. And even, do, even though we too are sinful, we are not in the grip of sin because of Jesus, because he was born. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we should seize every opportunity to worship God and celebrate the wonderful e events in the history of redemption. And we should do that most certainly on the Lord's days. As we will see when Lord's Day 38 is dealt with, we are commanded to come together on the first day of the week. But that does not mean that we cannot worship God on any other day of the week. Of course we can. Our hearts must yearn to hear God's voice. When you are in love, you yearn to be with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You want to be together at every opportunity. Well, we are also in a love relationship with the Lord our God. There is no greater love relationship than that. And that is something to celebrate. And that is also how the world should see us celebrate. But this is not something you can just impose. It is something you must do from the heart. You do not earn your salvation by keeping certain days holy as if going to a worship service on a particular day earns you some merit with God. That's what the Roman Catholics thought. And that is what the Judaizers to whom Paul writes in Galatia thought as well. Paul was really concerned about that kind of legalism. That's not how you serve the Lord. Therefore, he says to those legalists among the Galatians, to the Judaizers who are imposing all kinds of feast days on the Christians, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
Galatians 4, verse 10 and 11. Note well, however, that he is speaking here about the imposition of these things. To the Judaizers, the celebration of the feast days was necessary for salvation. That was wrong. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 14, verse 5 and 6, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. That's what it's about. In other words, Paul left it up to the freedom of each person in accordance with his or her own conscience. Conscience as directed in accordance with God's word, with no pressure from others to observe special days. The Lord God does not give us a direct command concerning everything that happens in the worship service. For example, to worship twice on a Sunday. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible, do you? And yet we do. Why? Because we seize every opportunity to worship the Lord our God. There is no direct command either that says in so many words that we are to baptize infants. However, Scripture clearly teaches that we must do so. And there are many other things that we are not directly commanded, but which nevertheless are faithfully practiced. There are not, these are not human elements we bring into the worship services, but scriptural ones. There's always a danger. There is a danger that we want to do certain things because that's what we like. That's what we're used to. And because we want to put ourselves into the foreground. And therefore, we always have to be on guard. When we worship, God has always to be in the center. And consequently, we may not take away any of the divine elements in the worship service. We have to be reverent when we worship. And that's what the second point is about. The Lord God wants you to take worship seriously. When the Israelites worshipped the Lord in a way that he had not commanded, sacrificing to other gods, then the Lord God killed 24,000 of them, which is what happened at Baal Peor. And when the sons of Aaron did not worship God in the way that he commanded, he also had them put to death. This was at the beginning of their nation, of God's people. And this is a warning to them. And this is why there is such a strong reaction to it from the Lord God to put him to death. Later on, they did these things as well. We're not put to death because otherwise, if he had done that, it would cease to exist as a nation. So this word, this served as a warning. The Lord our God is a holy God. We may not treat him in a frivolous manner. And so we also have to think about how we worship him. How seriously do we take it? How seriously do we take the Sunday, the first day of the week? How do we celebrate the birth of Christ? 
what do our children think when they think of Christmas Day? What is their impression of that day? Is it a day of worship for them or only a day of indulging the flesh? How do we teach them? Of course, we can celebrate. We can have all kinds of things that belong to Christmas as the world also celebrates it. But what is the point? The children have to understand why we celebrate what we do. That has to be central. It is about God. It is about God manifesting himself in our world and saving this world through that son that was born in Bethlehem. The concerns of the church fathers that they had in the 16th century are the same concerns of today. At Christmas time, we give honor to God. We worship him. And we must find all kinds of ways to show our children that that is our focus. It is a day of joy because of the birth of Christ, even though that may not have been the actual date of his birthday. It is a day of reverence because of what God has done to save the world. That's a momentous thing. Same thing must be said about the Sunday. How do we prepare ourselves for the Sunday? Do we stay up half the night before so that we're too sleepy on the Sunday to partake of the worship service? And what about just before the worship service? Before we even begin the worship service, we must have the right attitude and be in the right frame of mind. For families with little children, that's not always an easy thing. There are so many things that go on and that can put you on edge. But it is important to put everyone in the right state of mind so that our children understand that attending church is not a chore to be endured, but a privilege to be celebrated. We and our children should know what an actual service, church service is about. It is God meeting with us, talking to us. He wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to us about his love for us and how he shows that to us. He wants to tell us all about what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have life in abundance, even eternal life. He wants us to understand what our covenant relationship is all about and how wonderful that is. In the worship service, the two parties of the covenant are together. And God takes the lead. He is the one who established that covenant relationship. And he, has the one, he is the one who has chosen us to be part of his people. And he is the one who gathers us together. And in the worship service, the people then respond to God's love with their love for him. And so the Lord God wants us to respond in the proper way. He wants us to be active participants in the worship service. He wants us to pray to him, to sing, and to actively listen to the proclamation of his word. And when you sing, you must do so with gusto. And thankfully we do. It's wonderful to hear us sing together. And when you give alms, you do so generously. And when you listen, you listen also actively. 
And you must be not only an active participant, but also a reverent one. You may not be a stumbling block to others in the church by being disruptive, yawning, or falling asleep. Your reverence should show not only in how you sit and listen and sing, but also in the way you dress. You should not dress as if you're relaxing at home or as if you're about to do your chores. Before the Israelites came together, God told them to put on their best clothes. They also had to make sure that those clothes were washed and clean. They could not dress like they did during the rest of the week when they were working in the fields and looking after the animals and doing their household chores. No, God calls us to reverently worship him. God wants us to take our worship seriously. Once again, also here, we have to be careful with legalism. We shouldn't be prescriptive, too prescriptive in that regard. There are those who keep all the rules of worship. They do everything right. They dress the right way. They sing the right way. They listen the right way. Outwards, they are examples of piety. And that was also the case of the many Israelites during certain times in Israel's history. To the eye, they did everything right, and then some. They made their sacrifices. They went to the temple. They kept the various ceremonies and feasts. Just think about the Pharisees. But their hearts were not in it. During the week, they lived like pagans. They thought that through the ritual, they could please God. No, brothers and sisters, our worship service is the culmination of what happens during the week. We must worship God every day of the week in our homes, in our bedrooms. We must worship him. We must worship him in our hearts. For now we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. But on Sundays, we do it in the most special way. We do it together as God's people. One of the wonderful things about the Reformation was that the simplicity and beauty of a worship service was restored. The Reformers went back to the Bible. They did not want the trappings of the liturgical innovations of the Roman Catholic Church with all its man-made ceremonies and rituals. It's true that nowhere in the Bible is an exact order of worship recorded, prescribed, but the way we have our worship service is directly derived from God's word. In Acts 2, verse 42, it says that Worshippers in the New Testament church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those four elements, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, are still essential parts of our worship services. The first thing mentioned, the apostles' teachings, refers to the reading and preaching of the word of God. The second element, fellowship, is from a Greek word referring not just to the communion of saints, but also included the offering or the collection in the worship service. In this way, the poor were looked after. And the third element, the breaking of bread, refers to the Lord's Supper. Luke also mentions prayers. 
the prayers formed an essential part of the worship service. With our psalms and hymns, we also sent prayers to God. And so the prayers included the singing. If you look at Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism, then you see the same four elements mentioned. It says that we must diligently attend the Church of God. Why? In the first place, to hear God's Word. In the second place, to use the sacraments. In the third place, to publicly call upon the Lord. And finally, to give Christian offerings for the poor. Brothers and sisters, it is wonderful to worship God. God created us for worship. God created us to give glory to his name. He has given us the opportunity and the freedom to be able to do this. What a wonderful privilege. What a thing to be thankful for. There are millions and millions upon millions of people all over the earth right now who would love to be able to do what we are doing here right now, who are being persecuted or prevented in many ways of worshiping together as we do. How privileged we are. And so let's not neglect to worship him. And let's do so in the right manner and for the right reason. Not out of custom or superstition, as we promise every time a child is baptized, but because we want to. Because we have the freedom. It's great to be together to hear God's word and to sing praises to his name. What a wonderful way to spend your life here on earth. What a wonderful way to train yourself for the heavenly glory you will enjoy in the life hereafter. Can you imagine a better way to spend your time? How rich we are compared to the people of the world. Let us worship God. It is for that, peace, for that purpose that he created us. All life here on earth is ultimately all about worshiping that great creator. For to him alone belong the glory and the power and the dominion now and forever. Amen.